This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. It's time for our biggest episode to date. It's certainly been a huge year at Talk for Two. From returning after a six-month hiatus with Larry King, then welcoming everyone from Jerry Springer to Oliver Stone, Judges Patricia Domango and Michael Corriero took us inside the criminal justice system and the world of daytime arbitration. Sean Spicer and the former governor, Rod Blagojevich, laid out how it feels becoming unlikely political celebrities. It was great reliving my childhood with voice actors extraordinaire Billy West and Rob Paulson, and of course, celebrating Christmas with the one and only Fran Drescher. Plus, we had so many others throughout this year. Now, this may have been a crap year for leaving the house, but I want to thank you really all of you from the bottom of my heart for helping make the most of my staying inside for the better part of 2020. And what better way to end this year than with the quarantine queen herself, Carol Baskin. Baskin is the meme of 2020, shooting to instant fame with the release of the Netflix documentary Tiger King. A big part of the draw around Ms. Baskin is that the documentary posits, quite bombastically, the question as to whether or not she was involved in the disappearance of her then-husband. The question is central to the documentary's main conflict between Carol and zookeeper Joe Exotic. Exotic, a man Baskin says she has never met, despite Exotic's deep hatred for Baskin and her big cat rescue organization. Now, our interview does not focus on Howard Baskin's disappearance. Why? Well, for one thing, there are ongoing matters related to the mystery, and Carol didn't want to talk about that, and I I respect that. And for another, I personally do not believe someone's guilt or innocence should be tried, hashed out, or otherwise decided by the public at large because of a Netflix documentary that was meant to be sensational and to only tell a specific story. And to that fact, Baskin claims filmmakers lied to her about the purpose of the film, which took several years to shoot, and you'll hear about that in just a moment. One thing from Tiger King that we do address, however, is her perceived moral superiority over Exotic and others in the big cat industry. Twitter asked of Baskin, perhaps rightly so, who was seen as righteous and indignant over Joe Exotic's Greater Winniewood Exotic Animal Park, is your big cat rescue not as exploitative of tigers? Now, she actually has a compelling answer on the difference between a rescue and a zoo when it comes to big cat conservation. The point of this interview was not to play into the sensationalism. You know I try not to do that. Uh, When people zig with things in popular culture, I tend to zag. I actually wanted to give Baskin the platform to deliver her message in a way that the documentary did not allow. It's up for you to decide whether or not that happened. Just please go into this with that in mind, that I treated her with respect and this was not an interrogation. Here now to tell us why she literally lives for big cats, our interview with Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you today? 
I'm great. How are you? I am great. I see we're FaceTiming here. Nobody else could see this, but you are wearing your tiger print. Before we get <laughs> into your fame and your infamy and all that stuff that we're going to touch on, I really want to get to know you and your love for big cats. When did that start? You know, when I first came home from the hospital when I was born, there was a cat in my cradle, literally. And the first picture of me is my father holding a domestic cat and my mother holding me. And I didn't know until just a couple of years ago when I was disassembling the family album on the back, it said that the cat's name was Tiger, which I find hilarious now. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as falling in love with big cats, I've always loved domestic cats. But when um, when I ended up, I had done uh, Bobcat Rehab and Release from the time I was like 17 years old. But when I was in my 30s, I think my husband and I ended up at a exotic animal auction. We were buying llamas and the guy next to me started bidding on a bobcat. And so I leaned over to him and I said, when that cat grows up, she's going to tear your face off. And he said he was a taxidermist and that he was just going to club her in the head and make a dendro decoration out of her. And so I started crying and my husband started bidding and we brought her home, but she had been declawed. She wasn't from the state of Florida, so she had no opportunity to be released. And of course, she was like the worst pet ever. And so we started looking for somebody that she could play with. And my husband found a guy that said he would sell us a mate for her, somebody that she could not kill, like she was going after our German Shepherd. And it turned out to be a fur farm. And we rescued all 56 bobcats and lynx from the fur farm. And then we commenced to buying out two more fur farms. And that was how the sanctuary started. But it was only because I thought, this is a problem I can fix. And then I can get back to my real love, which is protecting domestic cats. So <laughs> I was wrong. It's been a 30-year endeavor now. <laughs> but um, I really feel like we're closing in on being able to end the abuse of big cats. I really, really hope so. You were talking about, uh, you actually emailed me his name. I don't have it up here because I have my other notes up here. The gentleman you mentioned, my Oliver Stone interview, that said he was the, uh, thinks he was the inspiration for Scarface, and you called him one of the uh, the worst big cat predators out there. What's his name and why is that? Why this gentleman specifically? And by the way, on that uh, Scarface thing, a lot of people claim to be the inspiration for Scarface. So I got to tell you, I didn't buy it even in the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> he at the time his name is mario tabro and he's yeah. in the miami area and back in the 80s or 90s he was at that time when he was arrested he was the largest cocaine kingpin that they had ever arrested and it went to jail for i forget how many years and then ended up going state's evidence and getting out in 12 and so he had been he had been accused, I don't think he was convicted, of cutting up a DEA agent and disposing of his body using a chainsaw and a machete. And so whenever the, I call them bad guys, the people who exploit these big cats, whenever they are trying to scare me, they always say that they're a friend of Mario Tabros and they're going to have him take care of me because everybody knows that he's just such a scary character. He's never threatened me personally, but a lot of the others have threatened me with him. It's interesting. You know, that's one of the things in the documentary is a lot of no good characters. Like, and, you know, we we can get in 
to a certain extent. I know you don't want to talk about it too much, but the rift between you and Joe. But I'm talking about really, really high crime people seem really drawn to big cats. What is the connection between big cats and like the status as a kingpin having a big cat? Have you thought about that at all? I have. And, you know, I'm no psychologist, but it seems to me that there's a pattern here that anybody can see. And that is that these are people who consider themselves above the law and who are really seeking power over people. And there's no greater sense of power, I think, than being able to say that you dominate a lion or a tiger, which is what they seem very intent on showing. You know, here I had this animal on a chain. I'm forcing this animal to my will. That seems to be their mentality. And so it it, it seems like it's a, a quest for power. Hmm. It's, that's really, really interesting. And your mission, your mission is to end the exploitation and the harm. You know, there are people, they watch the documentary, and this was my sort of big question for you, the hardest question I'm going to ask. Because you, one of the questions you you uh, you talk about is the, the issue between you and Joe. But in that documentary, I think subconsciously you're portrayed as no better than him. You have, you have a, a uh, and I'm not talking about the whole husband thing, we won't get into that today, but in terms of having a sanctuary where, or a zoo, or a zoo, so-called, where people can come and watch. What is the difference between having something that's available for the public to come and see these cats and the exploitation of the cats? Where's that line for you? I think it is in the underlying philosophy. So a zoo is in the business of buying or breeding animals to have them on display for a fee. Mm Mm-hmm or to, in some way, make money off of the animals. And what was really not portrayed correctly in Tiger King is that sanctuaries don't buy, they don't breed, they don't sell, they don't trade in these animals, they don't allow public contact with them, and they don't take them off-site for exhibition, like to fairs and malls and things like that. And so a sanctuary's primary business is to clean up the mess made by all of the breeding and dumping that happens from zoos. And it it, it was so poorly illustrated in Tiger King. And I think they even tried to make it look like zoos and sanctuaries were the same because that was an awful lot of the feedback I got from people was saying, well, you're no better, you're no different. And it's like my whole life is dedicated to ending our place because there shouldn't have to be a need for a place like Big Cat Rescue to rescue big cats from horrible situations. We need to just fix those horrible situations (laughs) so they don't happen. And that has been our mission forever. So – but still there's that issue, right, of of putting them on display, of having them for people to come and see. So I guess you would say that it's by necessity. You you have them on display, you have it so that people can come and see them because you need to bring awareness to this issue, correct? It, it's it's a little bit more than that because they're in the sanctuary community and when I say sanctuaries I'm talking about sanctuaries that are accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. Right. There's a lot of places that call themselves sanctuaries that are just zoos mm-hmm. calling themselves sanctuaries, so I'm <laughs> yeah. not even referring to that. But among the legitimate sanctuaries, some are open to the public and some are not. 
And we've each made different choices in whether or not we have any kind of visitation. All of us agree that if there is any visitation, it can't just be people running around. Make it, oh, I'm sorry, that's my alarm telling me it's time to talk to you. And it's going to keep doing that until I turn it off. So, Yeah, we started this a little early, folks. I, uh, I got set up. I texted her. And man, what is my life that I could say I could text Carol Baskin? This is so cool. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry you got stood up. <laughs> no. Um, so we chose to be open. And mm. what I started to say is when we are open, and if any sanctuary is open, we do it as guided tours. With the exception of one day a week, or one day a week, one day a year, we would have something that we called the Wildcat Walkabout. And that would be like 600 people come out for the day. But I had 70 of my own people there making sure that everybody was getting their questions answered. Nobody was harassing the cats. You know, none of that showed up in Tiger King. They just made it look like it's open like that all the time, which it's not. But of those of us who choose to be open, our primary reason is so that we can educate people about why these animals don't belong in cages and why they shouldn't be on display and getting those people at the end of our tours to actually call their member of Congress and ask them to support the Big Cat Public Safety Act, which is a federal bill that we've been pushing for years that would stop the cub petting and would phase out the private possession. And once you stop the cub petting and you phase out the private possession, sanctuaries, all of the sanctuaries, don't have to exist anymore because there's no more animals being dumped into private hands that need to be rescued. What is the danger with cub petting? It was touched on a little bit in the documentary, but I mean, that documentary came out 10 years ago in pandemic time. So uh, what is what is what is the danger? Why is the petting specifically harmful to the cats? It's a couple of things. One is the only way that they can use the cubs is like you saw in Tiger King, where they're dragging this newborn cub out with a hook across the gravel. They have to take the cubs from their mothers almost as soon as they're born, or the mothers will teach them to be aggressive and be tigers, be lions. Even if the mother is semi-tame, she'll still teach her cubs not to trust people. So they have to take them away right away. They can't put them back with the mothers, which means they have to bottle feed them, and there is no way to get tiger milk at the store. So it's not a, a complete diet for the cats that they're fed, and so they end up with all kinds of... Um, bone disease, metabolic bone disease, and all kinds of issues. And then as soon as they're 12 to 16 weeks old, they can take a finger off. And so at that point, they're not a asset any longer. They're a liability. And that's when they dump them into private hands. They uh, put them into breeding mills where they just pump out more and more tigers, or they end up killing them. We believe a lot of these places that have anywhere from 20 to 50 cubs a year, and yet their their census only goes up two cats a year, we believe that they're killing and incinerating those cubs when they can't use them any longer. But what all of that does is it creates an illegal, because it's legal to breed cats and have them privately as pets in the U.S., it creates a legal smokescreen for illegal activities like poaching, and the reason that that's true is because it only costs you a dollar for a bullet to poach a tiger in the wild for its bones and its skin and its teeth and its claws, whereas to raise up a captive tiger until it's big enough to use for those purposes is three or four years to get them to full size. 
And so it costs us $10,000 per year per tiger just for food and vet care. So which is going to be cheaper, taking, taking them out of the wild or keeping them alive for a few years to part them out? And that, that creates that smokescreen for the illegal activities. And then when on the international stage, tiger uh, farming, where they actually farm them in these tiny little cages, very much like what you saw at the GW Zoo, um, just constantly breeding and then starving the cats to death because all they want are the bones and the teeth and the claws. They do that in China with thousands of cats. And so when we're trying to, as the U.S. and other countries are asking China to not allow that kind of domestic farming of tigers, their reaction is, at least we know where our tigers are. In the U.S., you guys don't even know who owns them or where they are. And so we lose credibility on that stage to have any kind of impact in conserving the tiger and protecting them in the wild. Very, very interesting, and it's such an important issue. And I know you were hoping that the documentary would highlight those issues instead of glorifying big cat ownership and casting you as the villain. You talk about it. You you said you were told it was blackfish for cats. As much as you're comfortable, how did you feel when you saw the final product finally on Netflix? I know you didn't get an advance preview. Did you feel bamboozled? You know, we worked with them for five years, and the name of their product, they told us, was going to be Stolen Wildlife, which is a whole lot different than Tiger King. <laughs> and they Joe Exotic would have a small part in it because he is one of the people that exploits cats. But what happened was when Netflix was teasing it up, we saw that and we contacted the producers and we were like, who's got this documentary going on out there? Because this is weird. We haven't heard anything about a documentary about Joe Exotic. We got crickets back from them. And then as it got closer, we were just like, this can't be you guys, right? Because you said Joe was just like a really minor part in this. Again, it was just crickets. And so when it came out, my husband and I didn't know this was the documentary we had been working on. We sat down and we binge watched it like everybody else did. Mm -hmm. The end of that, we were just gobsmacked. We could not believe that that was the product of five years trying to expose the big cat issue in America. That was nothing like what we were told it would be. And we felt, in fact, we even said to each other, what a missed opportunity. They could have, with that kind of, especially as it turned out, with everybody watching during the pandemic, they could have done so much to end the abuse of big cats and to save the tiger in the wild. And it was just a freak show instead. Is that what you find the general attitude towards big cat comfort? conservation is that instead of and i'm talking about the community as a whole the people who want to come and see tigers that they're only interested in that power that that being near them being in control seeing them petting them Uh, is it really really hard to get the public at large to look beyond the sexy veil of of owning cats and, and to take these issues seriously I think it is hard for a number of reasons and probably primary among them is that we've had 200 years of zoos telling us that the reason zoos exist is to make people care about these animals so that we'll protect them in the wild. And 
instead of that happening over the last 200 years, instead these animals are right on the brink of extinction. So that tells me that that's not working. We need a different way of getting people to care about animals than seeing them in cages. And that's why I'm really excited about a lot of the stuff that we're doing in virtual reality and augmented reality, because I think we can engage people in a way that they've never been engaged before. And the ultimate result of that is if more people want those kinds of experiences, then they have to protect the habitat where these animals are, because that's where the live camera feeds will come from, is in the wild, watching these cats do what they do naturally. And I think I think there would be a huge demand for that that would then cause the people who live in those areas to want to protect those cats because that's their income and protect those cameras because that's their income. And it, it just solves so many issues if we save the forest, but it's hard to get people to care about saving a tree. If you know that the only way you're ever going to see a tiger is to see it in the wild through virtual reality or through video. Um, in our case, we really love 360 and 3D video so that you're like feeling like you're right there beside the cat. Then people will care about saving the forest. But if they can just go down to their local zoo and pay their 10 bucks and see a tiger, they're not going to care about saving the habitat. And that's where real conservation is. I agree. Before we go here, we got about 10 minutes left. I do want to talk, and again, I just for for the for the safety of for the fairness of this, I'm going off of some notes that you provided. And you, one of the questions you provided me, what was the issue between you and Joe? I'm sure Tiger King skewed it greatly. So, what was the what was the issue between you and Mr. Exotic, Mr. Maldonado Passage? I've never even talked to Joe Exotic. Wow. And so, yeah, we've never had a conversation. And I think when they decided that they wanted to make it a, and you hear this a lot in Hollywood, they want these character-driven dramas. Mm -hmm. And if you've got somebody on one side like Joe who every single day is cursing my name and you want to make it a drama between him and me and they come to me and I won't trash talk him, I won't say anything ugly about him personally I talk about the issues, but I don't talk about him. Then how are they going to make this something that's a feud if they can't get me to say anything awful? And so I think the only way that they could do that was to try and get every animal exploiter they could possibly line up to say as many bad things about me as they possibly could so that I look like a, a Karen who has <laughs> driven this guy to, to the state that he's in. And I feel like it was such a misogynistic approach to the entire issue that they had to create this villain in me in order for Joe to look like a sympathetic character. When, like I said, we've never even had a conversation. Mm -hmm. He was using our name as um, for his cub petting display. And he went on Facebook saying he did it so that if I said anything bad about cub petting at the mall that people would think it was big cat rescue that was doing this cub petting and he thought that this would you know stop me from saying anything about it so we had to sue him and he could have stopped using our name but he chose not to do that instead he countersued so he just kept it in the courts and kept draining his mother dry in order to stay in the courts and to push it forward until we finally got a million dollar judgment and then he thought he could just go down and bankrupt himself, and that would be the end of it. 
and he couldn't. And so he's been fighting through bankruptcy court all of this time, trying not to pay. And we had even worked out with him at one point a few years ago saying, you know, if you'll just stop the cub petting and we'll let you make really modest payments on this over a long period of time so that it wouldn't, you know, he could still run his zoo and he could make enough money to pay us off. And he agreed to that. And then Jeff Lowe came in and said, no, keep fighting. And so they kept fighting and they're still fighting. Hmm. It's, it's certainly very, very dramatic. And you mentioned the zoo. I know, and if we can't talk about this, we'll save this for the next time when you can. You are in an effort to actually take over the GW Zoo. Is that part of that lawsuit or can, can you talk about that at all? Yes, it was part of the lawsuit, and Je- Joe's mother actually came forward in the court and said that he had lied and had put everything into her name to try and keep us from being able to collect. And so the judge took her testimony and then awarded the zoo to us. But the animals were not part of the lawsuit, so Jeff Lowe moved all of the animals down to Thackerville, which is, I think, like an hour south of the GW Zoo. Mm-hmm. And he left behind three tigers, two bears, and 11 wolves. And so we worked with Pat Craig and one of our um, conservation partners to actually go into the zoo this past week. We took possession of the zoo. The sheriff was there to make sure that the handover was peaceful and that Jeff Lowe got off the property and took all of his derelicts with him. And um, Pat Craig took the animals out to Colorado. He has 9,000 acres for a sanctuary out there. And so these cats will be getting 35 acres instead of the 10 by 10 boxes that they were being kept in at the GW Zoo. Do you think Joe believes the stuff he says about you? Or do you think it's part of the exotic character? I think the people who are exploiting big cats don't have any argument that the public will embrace as to why they do it. So they have to divert the attention to anything but what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And the only way they can do that is by casting dispersion on me and my character, trying to diminish my ability to have any kind of influence in Congress or in any of the local um, state laws or anything that would stop them from doing the abusive things that they do. So, no, I don't believe they believe that at all. I just think it's a tactic. Very, very interesting. I want to spend our last few minutes here talking about you, which is a subject, I think, in the coverage of Tiger King and of the idea of Carol Baskin that gets lost because you became the biggest meme of 2020, the biggest meme of the pandemic lockdown, the biggest thing since the last viral thing that I can't think of. Let's start with Dancing with the Stars. How did you... <laughs> the end to all viral things. Yeah, well. <laughs> it really does feel... That's sad. Well, it's it's sad, but it also... I've never talked to anybody who has blown up in the way that you have over the last few months. And I have to know, and I mean this genuinely as a human-to-human connection here, how do you feel about your fame? How do you feel about the notoriety? Do you think in the end it's going to do – your fame is going to be good for 
big cats in conservation, or do you think that Carol Baskin is is too much of a of a mystery, and there's there's too much bad will from the documentary that that it it hurts you in the long run? What do you think? How do you feel? Well, I think the jury is still out on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I won't quit trying to end the abuse of big cats. They may have made it a lot harder for me to do because of all of the the doubt and the um, disparagement. But I I never give up, and mm-hmm. I'll use whatever this fame, as you call it or notoriety, I'll use every bit of that, like Dancing with the Stars, to get the message out there that these cats don't belong in cages and that we need to do things right now to end the captive breeding of these cats so that we can save them in the wild. Dancing with the Stars gave me that opportunity, and it was a big part of my negotiation with them was, one, I had to be able to do it in a way that would keep my family safe from COVID-19, and they, they were all about doing that. But the other was, if I was going to do this, it was not going to be about, as you just asked, who is Carol Baskin, what is Carol Baskin? It doesn't matter who I am. That, and what people say about me doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What matters to me is that we fix this in our lifetime because we're going to lose the tiger in our lifetime if we don't. And so every opportunity that I get, including being able to talk to you today, I hope will get us closer to saving the big cats. I really, really hope so, too. Uh, I was glad to see you on Dancing with the Stars. I think it's and I think it's great that you're leaning into it. I mean, yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter. What matters is the message. And I hope over time, the the bombast of the Tiger King situation dwindles, and you are able to to continue that message. the The Howard thing, the thing we didn't touch on today, kind of the big uh, I'd say elephant, but the big non-tiger in the room. I think that'll sort itself out, and you'll respond to that in time, as you've told me privately. And uh, right now, today was just about big cats and about uh, a little bit about the documentary and about what you really had hoped would be done for messaging for big cats. And I really, really appreciate your time. Carol Baskin, what an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. I cannot believe we get to end 2020 on that note. That was so much fun. Those of you that pay attention to this show know I was supposed to air it on Thanksgiving, the week, the Friday after Thanksgiving, Black Friday. I didn't do that. I wanted to hold it for now, New Year's Eve, because if one good thing comes from Tiger King infamy for Carol, I hope it's that Baskin is able to get her message out there in a way that is impactful and goes a long way toward making sure those majestic creatures are preserved. Carol, happy new year and thank you for your time. That is it for us today and this year. If you want to hear my full reflections on 2020, because I I know I don't get too opinionated here, check out our year in review episode I did with my good friend and colleague, Buddy Yon, on our Music Universe podcast. You can check that show out for more celebrity interviews featuring your favorite artists. We've been doing it all year since the pandemic, cranking them out. Tracy Bird, Tracy Lawrence, Christian Bush of Sugarland, Rhonda Vincent, so, so many legends on that show. 
I haven't talked about it on this show a whole heck of a lot, but the full year in review, we have an interview with Jesse James Decker, and we give our thoughts on everything from the Rona to the best albums of 2020, best music, best songs, and whatever else have you. That's over at themusicuniverse.com. Now, as far as this little show is concerned, remember you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest episodes. Also, subscribe to us in iTunes, Stichter, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at TalkFor2 and Instagram at TalkFor2Pod. Reach out to me directly at TalkFor2Cast at gmail.com. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey saying Happy New Year and reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. We'll see you in 2021. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com.